Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Certainly, U.S. retail sales, a big focus, 24 hours out. I agree totally. This is a huge, huge report, folks, and it goes beneath the control group to that breakout of how retail does versus online retail. And a good place, John, to start that discussion is with Stephen Sadoff. He's out of Hamilton College and then a terrific career working across big corporations and marketing messaging, merchandising, culminating in his tenure where he single-handedly reinvented Saks Fifth Avenue. We're thrilled that the former chairman could join us uh, this morning. Steve, I want to know how retail continues to adapt to Amazon. What have you learned in this pandemic about how retail will take on Jeffrey Bezos? Well, I think, uh, Tom, it's great talking with you, and you always have such terrific insights. I think what we're finding right now is the consumer is becoming much more digital. If you look at the MasterCard Spending Pulse data and their recovery insights, you see that retail online has basically doubled during the pandemic. It's gone from about 11% of sales to 21% of sales. Amazon's one of the major beneficiaries of that, but so are others. Look at Walmart. Look at Target.com. These guys are killing it. And the consumer has gravitated towards almost all of the major players that had invested in the technology to be able to provide a great experience online. But it's not just the online deliver to the home. It's also the buy online, pick up curbside and things like that. So it's this seamless integration of the technology into the overall consumer experience that's growing. Okay, but Steve, this is so important. I mean, let me just take as just one example. If Lisa Abramowitz is working the OOTD from Saks Fifth Avenue and she's looking at the Layla Rose dress, usually $1,700, now $800, why does she go back to shopping on Fifth Avenue? Why can't Lisa get the OOTD 24-7 off digital? She can, and she'll do it probably at Saks with uh, the associate that she has the relationship with, uh, with there. So I think that the full price selling, so if you're going to buy a Louis Vuitton handbag, it's going to be the same price whether you buy it online in the store at the Louis Vuitton shop or you buy it at Saks. So the price is not going to be the uh, issue on that full price item. On the discounted end of season merchandise, then clearly you're going to be able to figure out where you want to buy it. But some people, remember, even with the uh, MasterCard data saying that 21% is online, that means 79% of the volume is still in the store. People still like to experience product. They still want to get that interaction with a, uh, the associate, try it on. Now, clearly, they have to feel safe. And right now, we're in an environment where the consumer has to feel safe enough to be able to go on into a store. And that's evolving right now as stores open, and we're opening in New Jersey today. As you open up, there's a pent-up demand to get out into the store, and you're seeing week by week improvement in the trends. Now, the outdoor malls, for example are picking up faster. People are more comfortable being in an outdoor environment than they are going inside of a big shopping mall. Freestanding stores like a Saks, use that as an example, or maybe even a Kohl's or a Target or a Walmart, people feel a little more comfortable with that than the interior of a mall. 
Yeah, well, Steve, uh, if I were going to go try on a Chanel suit and did want to go to a physical location in order to look my best when I go to Bemelman's when John and Tom are there uh, talking on an average Tuesday evening, I am wondering, there is a question <laughs> of how much of the existing store space will have to close in order to meet the fact that, yes, I am going to probably buy my suit online at some point, but I may go uh, to the store. What? How much more do you expect in terms of store closures? Oh, I think it's going to be a lot. We're, we're in a reset period right now. There are 1,200 malls in the United States. I think in the next three, four years, a third of them may go away. That doesn't mean the A and B malls. It's going to be the sum of the CD malls. As you see, the J.C. Penney's go out of the uh, mall. As Macy's closes a lot of the store, co-tenancies will uh, kick in. So some of the, a lot of these malls will go away. If you look at the high street going Madison Avenue or down in Soho in New York, you've got huge vacancies. The rents are going to have to come down. <clears throat> You're going to see a reset in the system, uh, it, and I think you're going to. Steve, we've been saying that for years, and, and I'm I sorry to jump is, in. With, we right. have been saying that forever. Madison Avenue, Lexington Avenue, all these storefronts that have been shut down forever, waiting for the rents to come down. Steve, why hasn't it happened, and why will it happen now? I think because you've got a, a, what I call that reset in the system. The landlords haven't been able to haven't lowered the rents because they've got obligations to their lenders relative to the valuations that they're going to be uh, uh, basing their rents against. I think that what's going to happen is a lot of these guys are going to go under. You're going to see restaurants going <laughs> under. You're going to see new players coming in. It doesn't mean there won't be restaurants. There's going to be restaurants, but there may be a new ownership structure with a different rent fee. I think in uh, some of these stores, you can, if you have 20% of the business, let's say, or 30% of the business going online, you don't have the volume <laughs> per square foot that's going to support the kind of rent in a store and the rents are going to have to come down or they're going to be empty storefronts. Steve Sadov with us, folks. We're thrilled to have you on radio and TV with us uh, today. Steve, you know, across from Louis Vuitton, where John Farrell is going to buy the Rivoli sneakers for $985, those with the Damier canvas, the gray check ones. Uh, John looks great in gray uh, check from Louis Vuitton. is a small <laughs> shop called Tiffany's. Give us an update on Tiffany's LVMH. What a soap opera. Steve Sadoff, what would you do if you were LVMH on this busted transaction? Well, look, I think LVMH wanted to buy Tiffany. They had a price that was $135 a share before the pandemic. Valuations have come down. The luxury market has uh, slowed dramatically. You don't have the tourism coming in from uh, China. So you have a reset. LVMH would obviously like to own Tiffany. It's a great brand, has great expansion opportunities overseas. My guess is they're trying to play a game relative to getting a better valuation. This is no different than Simon and the Taubman uh, deal on the uh, REITs. They, yeah. The price is probably too high. I don't know whether these things are going to happen or not happen. It's all about price. I can't imagine that they, for the longer term, don't want the brand because Tiffany is a great brand and LVMH would be a terrific parent. But this all comes down to price. It's the same as the real estate we were talking about. The brands can't pay the levels of rent. The la the landlords owe the lenders, and your and lenders need to be bailed yeah. out by the government. Steve Sadoff with us with Mastercard advising. Mastercard, of course, has worked with Sachs, folks. When you hear the word exclusive, that somebody has a dress exclusive, Mr. Sadoff is decidedly the one who invented that. Dan and Ruskin at Deutsche Bank. Alan, the V-shaped head fake. You're focused on that. Talk to us about it. 
Yeah, I think you put it right. I think it's going to be a head fake, but it's uh, going to look quite good in terms of a V in June. As we sort of transition from lockdown to reopening, I think the data could be extraordinary. Um, you know, just in the same way as when we were in reverse, really, from an open economy to lockdown, we went into some sort of plunge. So I think initially, at least in June, the data will look good, or the data for June in particular will look good. Um, that maybe lasts through July, by August, I think, uh, you know, that, that factor will be uh, normalized as such and will be back into the idea that, unfortunately, we're living in a world somewhere between lockdown and open, some sort of halfway house story, and that the new normal is nothing like the old normal. Well, if that's the case, Alan, how do you express it across assets? I mean, you are an international strategist, and we can look at equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. What is the productive play, given your ambivalence about a strong V-shaped recovery? Tom, I think you can't get ahead of yourself. I think uh, you know people are inclined to think, okay, we can trade this on a three, maybe six-month view. I think that's probably, uh, you know, it's very difficult to do. I think you've got to focus really maybe on, uh, one week ahead, two weeks ahead, which is tough for you know longer-term asset managers. It's, it's a little bit easier for the leverage fund guys. Uh, but in general, I think you've got to say, okay, you know, it felt like uh, a week ago it was risk on. <laughs> right now, it's, it's it, you know, it doesn't look great as far as risk is concerned, and you effectively have got to play in a much more defensive mode. But I don't think you can be thinking in terms of okay. Um, you know, because it's V-shaped in June, uh, you know, it's going to be risk on uh, for uh, the next six months, for example. I think that V will be helpful for risk uh, in the next, say, uh, month or two, but it's not necessarily going to be terribly helpful for risk uh, three to six months out. Alan, when you look at some of the calls across the Wall Street houses, as Tom Keane was mentioning earlier, the idea that you're getting some pretty bullish calls, it comes on the heels of expectations for fiscal stimulus. And yet over the weekend, we heard from Larry Kudlow, chief economic advisor to President Trump, that he is expecting the enhanced unemployment benefits to expire next month as planned. First of all, do you buy that? And second, do you think that that will have a material negative impact on the potential recovery of the U.S.? Um, so the answer to your last part of the question is absolutely. Um, you know, I think what you're seeing is that when you look at uh, the breakdown of GDP, the big plus is really on the government minus taxation side, the effectively the fiscal piece of it, which is really building the bridge to, uh, you know, effectively from lockdown to open. And everything else is looking extremely weak. So consumption, you know, wealth effects, not too bad. The income from the government side is is very, very helpful, but employment's so bad and precautionary savings are kicking in. So consumption is not looking good. Uh, on the investment side, you know, commercial real estate in particular, I think it's going to get walloped. Uh, on the export side, you've got a global synchronized, depressed, uh, um, not I wouldn't say recovery, uh, really depression. So there's a lot to make up for on the government side. And the government's going to have to, I think, kick in really with the employment benefits. So I would say on balance, I would expect that they won't expire, that they will be rolled over. Um, I think it's in both parties' interest to do that. But whether you can get the Republicans and Democrats to really come together with a bigger program than that, I think is going to be tough because they do seem to be quite far apart. Well, Alan, at the moment, what we hear again and again and again is the following phrase, policy fatigue. I don't see policy fatigue. I just see the composition of the policy effort changing. And I wonder if they just get it wrong. Is that what you're focused on, Alan? Not so much that, uh, John. I think, um, I think it's less 
fatigue than they've done a remarkable job in front-loading uh, policy easing, both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. So I think you just can't keep up that sort of level of momentum. And then you've just got to look and hope that actually um, you are, uh, as I mentioned earlier, sort of building this bridge. Um, I think when, I, when this all started, I felt that uh, if the virus was going to be a depressant on growth for, say, longer than three months, the fiscal monetary policy end of things would not be sufficient to effectively build that bridge. Um, they've done so much effectively that I think um, now I think we can cope with a virus extending three to six months, uh, maybe you know even towards year end really. Um, but it does need some of those elements. It needs it, it does need the <clears throat> rollover of benefits. I think that that is going to be crucial. So there's cer- certain right. elementary pieces uh, that are that are going to be important. Alan, what's your dollar call? I mean, you have to put up with George Cervellos. My deepest sympathies on that. But what is the Ruskin dollar call right now? Uh, no, no sympathies needed. So I think um, over time, I think the dollar will weaken. Um, it's, it's subject to, I think, three main forces. In the short term, it's all about risk on, risk off, really. And the, the dollar does better in risk sure. off. Uh, the medium term, it's all about this, this virus differentiation, whether the U.S. is going to be worse than anywhere else. In the long term, I think the focus has to be on the external accounts. Are we back into the world <clears> of twin deficits? That's going to be the big one, the current account, I think, in determining whether the dollar really goes down hard or not. Adam Ruskin at Deutsche Bank. Right now, John opened the show with a disappointment in China. Forget about V-shaped. The question is, what kind of recovery will it be? And for all of us in the West to understand China, we need to interpret through reading. The best book in ages is George Magnus's Red Flags. It is not a grim book, but it is a cautionary tale on the modernity of the new China. Dr. Magnus joins us this morning from the Oxford China Center. George Magnus, wonderful to have you with us at this important time. How big a slowdown are we observing in China? Well, the worst of it, Tom, was probably in February and March. And actually, since March, I mean, and remember that China is about eight-ish weeks ahead of us in terms of the evolving coronavirus uh, phenomenon, uh, certainly from an economic point of view and from a you know lockdown point of view. So actually, since April, now May, we've got kind of two months' worth of data for really, uh, or getting on for a full set. I mean, the economy is actually, parts of the economy are recovering pretty well. So... If you look at the production side of the economy, electricity, steel, cement, uh, heavy industry, we're now at or above 2019 levels of activity. Uh, so that's right. come back well. But the demand side of the economy hasn't done so well. Exactly. So dichotomy. You know, I want to, this, folks, goes back to George Magnus at UBS and the great Jonathan Anderson as well, and your calibration of Chinese demand and global demand. Is the challenge here for Beijing, and for that matter, for Washington as well, the domestic demand of China, or is even more important that lack of global demand of Chinese products? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in this respect, I think, you know, the, the both are sort of tarred with the same brush. I mean, Chinese demand, which was particularly real estate demand and, you know, commodities demand, which is very kind of closely associated with uh, what goes on in the Chinese real estate and construction sector. I mean, these areas got absolutely hammered uh, during the first 
months of 2020. Um, and um, to the extent that these sectors are coming back a bit, actually it is you know, obviously a good thing from the point of view of global growth, but we should be quite cautious in looking at you know, growth rates and levels. Levels are better because there has been a bit of a, a catch up, a bit of a bounce back, but the growth rates that we're seeing in activity in construction, infrastructure, uh, real estate, consumer demand are really much, much off the pace that were recorded, even in the kind of slowdown years of 2018, 2019. So uh, we've got quite a long way to come back there, yeah. Well, George, that's the dilemma of the moment for a lot of people on the outside looking in. The data points we should focus on and the data points we should ignore. What is worth our while right now? Well, uh, the, you know, every, the, we had a lot of data out today for industrial production, for infrastructure, investment, and so on. And uh, the one thing that kind of unemployment... So the, the one thing that really stands out amongst all of these data releases that we've had out... Uh, is construction, construction, construction. That's the sector that's really um, taking up a bit of the slack in the economy at the moment. Um, unemployment is something that, I mean, people look, watch it. The, the numbers aren't particularly reliable because they don't include migrant workers who uh, basically approximately about a fifth of migrant workers still probably haven't gone back to work yet, uh, which means that even though the unemployment rate dropped uh, from 6 to 5.9% in May, um, the actual rate of unemployment is probably closer to about 15 to 20%. Uh, so we need to kind of watch a little bit the numbers that we can't see in the kind of official stats. Also, credit creation. Um, China's rhetoric is very much about we're not going to repeat the mistakes that we did in 2008, 2009, and 2014-15. But actually, there's been more credit creation during the first five months of this year than there was by a long way in uh, the first five months of 2018 and 19. So over the last six months, for example, credit creation is running at about 15% annualized, which is the highest it's been since 2017. So this is kind of a little bit of the old playbook of you know infrastructure, construction, credit creation. And we've got to be a little bit careful. We don't blame the Chinese for doing this. I mean, we'd all do this if we can and if we could. Um, but actually, given China's pre-existing indebtedness and uh, bad loans and so on and so forth, these things have to be watched quite carefully during the course of this year and into 2021. George, let's tease out some of what you just said. A 15 to 20 percent real unemployment rate perhaps explains why credit creation is running at the rate that it is as China tries to juice the economy. Can you give us some perspective of the last time that China saw unemployment rates that you believe truly are the situation and how much pressure this puts on Xi Jinping to come up with some new stimulus efforts? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, so the unemployment and labor market stats in China, like like a lot of emerging countries, actually, are not, not that good. Um, and um, the last time we think that there was anything as alarming as this in terms of joblessness was probably in you know, just after the Cultural Revolution in the late in the mid to late 1960s. So, and then the, you know the numbers were even worse than they are today. Uh, but um, every single state council and Politburo meeting that's been held since January of 2019 has always been, has each, all of them have been dominated by one major issue, which is unemployment, jobs, 
joblessness. You mean, look at every state council meeting, every uh, the National People's Congress, which was held recently, the annual meeting of China's so-called parliament, um, basically uh, told us, uh, reconfirmed to us again, that unemployment, joblessness is the one issue that the Chinese government and leadership care about more than anything else at the moment. And, um, and we should expect to see a lot of activity from the government to try that. They've done it already, actually. Fiscal policy is very expansionary. Monetary policy is credit policy, very expansionary. Um, but it is the thing that really would, could undermine, obviously, the legitimacy of the government and its kind of reputation for doing things right all the time um, is if this doesn't get sorted out quickly. I mean, we know in our own world, in the Western world, that it's going to take a long time to get on top of this um, um, chronic issue that we have about joblessness, and particularly in the gig economy. And you know, China has its own gig economy, um, and uh, this is this is something that we really need to pay a lot of attention to because they are. Well, George, the big issue, of course, and I'm sure you understand that, others might not, is that in a place like China, a high unemployment rate would be considered by some within the Communist Party as an existential risk. So I'm looking on the outside, looking in and wondering, how does this shape their foreign policy? How does this shape the Chinese Communist Party's foreign policy if they know they've got domestic problems brewing at home? What do they do abroad? Uh, well, this is, uh, I think, a question which uh, a vexing question for practically every international relations expert uh, that there is in the world, because um, obviously when China has been feeling in the past very confident about its economic position and its economic heft uh, in Asia and in the world, it kind of comes across as confidence and you know assuredness and sure-footedness in terms of its foreign policy. And of course, the converse of that holds true as well. When China is feeling very insecure and very threatened because it hasn't got total control over the domestic economy or over aspects of the domestic economy which are causing them political, potentially causing them political problems, then you know there is a nationalism in the way in which, or a ext more extreme version of a nationalism, um, which we can detect in the way it conducts its uh, relations with the United States and other countries as well. And um, I think probably we all understand, I mean, it's not a uniquely Chinese phenomenon, but we all understand that in China, uh, certainly this year, there has been a marked uh, kind of tilt towards a more truculent, nationalistic kind of bias in terms of the conduct of its international relations, uh, which, um, which I think stems from you know, rising economic insecurity, which I think is something they will find it very difficult to kind of push to one side for some time, would be my judgment. George, really, really fascinating stuff. And we appreciate your unique perspective and insight and look forward to catching up with you again soon. George Magnus there of Oxford University. Right now, never morose to Stephen Gallo. Stephen Gallo of BMO Capital, BMO, Bank of Montreal. We're thrilled that Stephen Gallo could join us because he does very acute work synthesizing all this together. Stephen Gallo, what does FX tell you about the cross currents that are so evident this morning? I think overall, big picture, Tom, I think what investors know now is that the economic playing field has become a lot more evenly balanced over the last one to two months. And I think that's why there's a great irony in the fact that the virus, uh, the COVID-19, has come from China, because an 
evenly balanced playing field is a lot better for you if your economic model is largely not-for-profit, state-directed, and, and also debt-dependent. You can't forget that. But I think the economic playing field being a lot more evenly balanced means the medium-term growth outlook will be heavily shaped by the success or failure of government intervention and fiscal policy experimentation, basically MMT. So I think that is a lot more important for FX than the next marginal reduction in interest rates or the next marginal increase in central bank QE. That said, I think it's just one final comment. I think it's important that we are moving into a period where U.S. economic data are going to become a bit more important for the dollar as investors attempt to uncover what the shape of the U.S. recovery looks like. Well, Stephen, let's talk about the policymaker uh, and whether they're successful or not. As you know, markets aren't waiting for that. There just seems to be a ton of optimism that in Europe, the policy effort is very real. It will materialize in a way that it did not 10 years ago. And people have become very optimistic on Europe and a single currency. Do you share that confidence? Well, I think what we've learned over the last decade or so of the Eurozone's existence is that European political leaders are very good at appeasing financial market pressures. They're less good at heading off medium-term risks. An ESM credit line for Italy will create loads of medium-term political risks. Bickering over burden sharing related to the rescue fund will create medium-term political risks. The fiscal impact of the recovery fund, especially on, on, on weaker, so-called weaker euro area member states, is going to be staggered. The direct in fiscal, in fiscal impact will probably be low. That also will create medium-term uh, risks. So, uh, you know, I think you've got to look at the medium term. Financial market pressures are one thing. Political pressures are an entirely different one. Stephen, there are a lot of downside risks to the euro, but it's a relative game and there are a lot of downside risks to pretty much everything. And I'm wondering about Stephen Roach of Yale University, who wrote a column, a series of columns for Bloomberg Opinion, talking about how the U.S. dollar is going to lose its supremacy as it engages in financial repression and an increase in the deficit. Yes, the euro faces risks, but is it a better uh, potential slate of risks compared to the dollar? Do you expect the euro to continue to strengthen versus the greenback? I think short run, our call is that the risk rally will continue, notwithstanding the weakness in equity markets we saw at the end of last week and the beginning of this week. I think our view is that the, the, the size and the, uh, the pace of Fed balance sheet expansion is something that will put a floor under global equity markets. So short run, yeah, we think that the, you know, the euro dollar, the move we've seen up over the last few weeks can extend a bit. But I've cautioned and I continue to caution that we don't have a huge amount of conviction around that call. And the main reason is because we're so unenthusiastic about non-dollar currencies. Um, we've, we've been saying that for a long time, that the, the, the COVID-19 is, is not clearly increased the attractiveness of, non, of non-dollar currencies. Um, that said, though, uh, and I alluded to the economic data coming out of the U.S. A, a short while ago, we need to watch that closely. And also on this side of the election, due to the political risk in the U.S., it doesn't look likely that significant depreciation of the dollar is going to occur. I think FX markets are probably in a waiting, in a waiting period right now. Stephen Gallo of BMO. Stephen, I hope you're doing well and you're safe and well too. You sound it. It's great to catch you up. Stephen Gallo there of BMO Capital Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.